This is the Beautiful Feet Podcast. A partnership with BeautifulFeetEntertainment.com. Follow us on social media at Beautiful Feet Entertainment and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Beautiful Feet Podcast. Uh, my name's Anthony. And I'm Jessica. And we're going to continue on... Um, with a series that we began last week. So last week we started um, just kind of doing a compare and contrast of hip-hop and ballet. Uh, This week we picked out a handful of individuals who are uh, impactful in both art forms and we're going, we're kind of going to give a little bit of a backstory and why we picked these individuals. So do you have any comments before we jump in? Uh, just for our podcast last last week, it was really, here's a crash course into the introduction of ballet and also an introduction to hip-hop. So when we're thinking about this podcast, we wanted to think about who are going to be a handful of individuals that stand out in these different disciplines to us, like, picking out why they're important, why we feel like they're influential in these particular fields. So, Anthony and I, we're going to go back and forth. He's going to talk about a pick, a person, why they're important, and then I will have one, and we're just going to keep this in more of a conversational style. So, I told him, I was like, you're going first, so he's up. All right. So, um, and again, these are hand-chosen by us. This is not... Um, like a greatest of all time type of a list because um, especially with hip-hop it's really hard to pinpoint like the greatest of all time or the most influential of all time because everybody's gonna have a different opinion um, but when I thought okay in my mind who impacted the culture of hip-hop uh, the most Um, I would have to start off with Tupac. So, Tupac was born in 1971 and um, fortunately passed away in uh, 96. I do have notes in front of me, but uh, for some reason I couldn't think of how to say it. So, why I chose Tupac, um, again, this isn't even in any specific order. Um, but I feel like when you, when you think of what hip hop stands for, he is what hip hop, like he is that image of hip hop, right? Somebody who kind of comes from nothing and through hard work, through dedication and through, uh, talent, he was able to make a name for himself by the age of 25. Um, and that's kind of unheard of, um, to the point where he died at 25, he's still making impact today. And will you, um, do you know off the top of your head how many albums he produced in his lifetime? Is it 10? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the exact number. He produced a good number before his death. Mm-hmm. Um, but he produced at almost five at least after he died um and a lot of people question you know how is he still releasing music if he had passed so there was a moment in his life um where he um 
he was shot and he was hospitalized for that. After he was healed from that, he lived in the studio. Like he would wake up, go to the studio and be there for hours upon hours to the point where it seemed like he would write songs, record them and not even finish finishing like the editing process or the mastering of it, he would just move to the next song. Mm -hmm. So all of his songs were unfinished. What that did though, that allowed new producers to get their, their hands on what was already finished, fix it, put it back together, and re and release this music. Now, does he have an estate? Is there like a foundation of people who are um, uh, making sure that his, his music is preserved? Uh, the only, I don't know if there was an estate, because I don't think that that happened. His mother, I think, owned the rights to the majority of his music um, after he had passed. He did not, as far as I know, he did not have kids. Um, I don't believe he was married at the time of his, his murder. So that was kind of a big, you know, he didn't have a whole lot as far as, um, possessions, right? He was mm -hmm. very much just, I'm here, I'm making music, I'm enjoying life. And a lot of the knowledge I have from Tupac comes from the, uh, the film um, Tupac Resurrection, which you actually watched. Yes, we did. We watched that. And, and again, this came out touching 2000. So a few years, I mean, it might have been in the 2000s when it came out. Um, and people ask because it's narrated by Tupac. And people, you know, how, how was he able to narrate this if he's dead? I think he just knew, I'm going to die young. I think he just had this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stack up as much as I can so when I do pass, people can remember my story. So he just sat down and narrated his life. And then somebody took that and made a movie out of it. Um, and... But what made him so influential, he spoke about the common man. He didn't just write about, oh, I'm, I'm famous and rich and here's the, the diamonds and the chains and the gold. He was like, okay, I'm going to come out with songs like Brenda's Got a Baby. I'm going to come out with songs um, called, you know, like Dear Mama, where it's talking about him and his mom's relationship. He came out with songs like Keep Your Head Up, which talked about women empowerment i mean he came out with so many songs that people to this day will turn on and be like this is more relatable now than it may have been in the 90s so he had a message in his songs that are is really gonna resonate with a variety of different audience members yeah correct absolutely and and the funny thing is is he also he would write these heartfelt loving just well put together songs and then two songs later on the same album you'd hear the sex drugs and like you would so he had he was like I'm, I'm an adult i'm a man i understand people's struggle but i also like to party i also like to have fun so he wrote about everything so and i feel like it is interesting to look at that through the lens of you have to remember he was, what, 25 when he passed away? He was so 25. He is going to be having like a lot of experiences, like late teens and early 20s. Mm -hmm. Just that vibrance, 
that vibrant energy that he was able to capture. And I can't, I can't think of a single rapper from today, let's say the last 15 years, right? From the time that Tupac passed, 96, I can't think of a rapper who would not put him in their top five. And speaking of top five, did you end up doing three artists or five? Um, I have three, but I could rattle off more than that. If, so, you know. why don't we do like a top three and then maybe honorable mentions? We can do that. So, that's my first choice. I'm not going to say my number one, but my first choice. Okay. Is there anything else that you feel like you wanted to talk about Tupac as far as what he's done for hip-hop in general? I'll say this. He got your mom's attention. Yeah. Um, You've got to tell the story. Okay, so February was Black History Month. And the book club that I'm a part of was like, okay, we are going to pick someone from African American history to highlight. And I have picked Tupac. And I read The Rose That Grew from Concrete. So I had it out on our coffee table. Now, just to give some background, this book... The Rose That Grew From The Concrete, it's a book of poetry by Tupac. And a lot of people, when they hear that, they think, oh, it's just his, a book of his lyrics. It's not true. This is something he did on his, you know, aside from writing raps, his hero poetry. Go ahead. So I have this book out on our coffee table, and I just told my mom, hey, like, here's what I'm reading for book club, because, you know, she... She knows that I love to read, so she picked it up, she took a look at it, she's, she was like, this is beautiful. And then I told her that Tupac is a is a hip hop artist, and she said, "Oh well, he must be." And this is this is the kicker. This is like our term now. This is her thing, her contribution to hip hop. She said, "Oh, Tupac must be classical hip hop." Yeah, um, that's not a thing. But in her mind, because my mom, classical music, that's her jam. That's her comfort zone. So she was just so moved by the beauty of Tupac's poetry that apparently that is her her mashup now. She, yeah. She has included him in her little world and so we just we just got the biggest kick out of that. And and that that's another thing is he's one of those artists that like I feel like if you sit down and listen to his lyrics no matter who you are, what you've gone through, you'll find something to relate to. You may not like everything he says, and that's okay. Even he says, that's fine. I'm not trying to win everybody over. But he was very, very much like, as an artist, he felt like it was his job to uh, give a, you know, paint a picture or, you know, make a portrait of life. So he, he was rapping about everything. So that's my first spot. Let's jump to your first spot. Alrighty, thank you so much for sharing Tupac as your first person that's influential in, in the hip hop world. Um, when, I, when I sat, when we had thought about this, cause we always kind of brainstorm a little bit first, I knew immediately, okay, here's the three people that I want to talk about. Um, and the first person that I want to mention in, like, my top five, okay, this is a person who's influential in ballet, who is a ballet dancer, or who was a ballet dancer, 
I have to start off with Anna Pavlova. And I, I literally sat and I wrote out like a little bit about, okay, this is why I picked her. Um, I hopped on over to biography.com just to get some, some basic details for you. She was born February 12th in 1881, so we're taking it way back here. And she died in January on the 23rd of 1931. So when she was eight years old, she had an opportunity to see the ballet of the Sleeping Beauty. And from there, she was like, I know this is what I want to do. So she went and she she got training and she just rose really high through the ranks. She was able, like in 1905, she was a part of a ballet called The Dying Swan. And this is really what what is interchangeable for her. It's what she's known for. Um, in 1911, she actually went and she founded her own ballet company. Um... I just, she just, I don't know, like, she was the first person, like, she was my top pick, because I think she's just the epitome of what people think of when they think of, oh, here's a prima ballerina. Even though, like, she was small as a child, and I feel like initially she may have been discouraged from, hey, do you really want to pursue this? But... She just really persevered, and that just allowed her to reach the pinnacle of the ballet world. But she just, even though she did, like, have this very delicate frame, that, like, pairing that with her character in The Dying Swan, it was just, per like, a perfect match because she was able to bring this delicacy, like, to this character, and this character was really just an embodiment of who she was as a performer. But um, I think she also traveled with the Ballet Russe. Um, I will have to look that up and get back to you. But I just know that ballet literally was her life. It was it just meant so much to her. So just to see that passion of like, she wasn't just a casual fan of the arts. Like this was what she dedicated her entire life to was the world of mm -hmm. ballet. And... Let's let's look into that. You said that she was a little smaller, right? A little, yeah. Um, how would that have impacted her role as a ballerina? Like, what what does that look like, or how does that fit? Um, I think that there was concern that she was not gonna really have the strength needed to sustain these kind of roles. So mm -hmm. she really had to push herself, and I don't. She may have been sickly as a child. Again, I wish I had like more of like concrete. Hey, here's my resources. I mean, we can grab the Tardis and go back to the I 1800s know, right? and be like, "Hey, lady, what's up?" Um, and I don't think she was super tall. Again, I'd have to like hop on just Wikipedia to be like, "Hey, how tall was she?" Because you know, when you think of a ballet dancer, you think of some. There, there were like five nine, five ten, like mm -hmm. women that are that are taller. Yeah. Um, that's good. Um, but yeah, so she kind of, it seems like she would have been like, okay, here's your, what most ballerinas would look like. She's like, no, I can do it even though I look different or I'm not the same size as everyone else. I have that determina determination to do it. Um, so that's actually pretty cool. 
You know what I mean? Like it's still coming up and going, hey, I'm not your typical, but I will, I will do what I need to do. And a shout out to the New York City Public Library. I think it's the Jerome Robbins Dance Library actually has a pair of her point shoes. And I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah. So shout uh, out to you guys. There we go. Are we jumping to number two? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Take the ball. My number two. And, and those of you who've listened to the podcast before, um, back in, I want to say December, I did an episode of like my top five lyricists all of the people i'm picking are, are still on that list because when i made that list it was very much like i'm i was i was picking people who i felt influenced hip-hop anyway so some of this you may hear again but we're just gonna keep going um my second choice is will smith now he hasn't made music in i mean he's had a few things that he's done but honestly his last actual album i think came out in 2005 so it's been a long time but you're talking about somebody who had their first record deal as a teenager and not only that so so he was part of um the very first hip-hop record company Def Jam Records mm -hmm. and again became a platinum selling artist uh you know at the at I don't want to say a specific age but he was was barely 19 like he was a boy um you know and if you don't know you know Fresh Prince that's who he was and DJ Jazzy Jeff I mean the first and what they did um you know, at that time, groups like N.W.A. were starting to come out. And gangster rap started to emerge. But Will Smith and uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff basically were like, let's still make party music. Let's make fun music for families. So mm -hmm. they very much focused on, we're still making, and they, you know, and... So that was an intentional decision to put together content that would be pleasing for the whole family to listen to yeah and not only that i think it was i think he went down the path of like using expletives in his music and i i think a family if i remember correctly a family member i think it was his grandma basically sat down with him and said hey real intelligent people don't need to use that type of language so his grandma or you know this family member i believe it was grandma kind of sat him down and was like, hey, you have the freedom to do whatever, but let me correct you before you go down a really bad path. And and a lot of people, you know, hip-hop heads, listen to Will Smith and be like, oh, he's corny. But if you listen to him in the early 90s as the Fresh Prince, his lyrics are incredible. And Will Smith and Tupac have a, a person that they share in common. You want to talk about that for a moment? I'll touch on that in a minute. <laughs> it's hilarious. But, uh, and they do. But anyway, his lyrics, I mean, he was rapping fast. I I remember because I, I went through a rabbit hole in my teenage years where I was like, I need to kind of get back in touch with the origins of hip hop. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. because I wasn't alive in '86 when he when he dropped his first single. Um, so I kind of had to go fishing for his stuff. This is before iTunes, before you could just download music. I had to actually go find the album, and I found. Um, I want. So did you like purchase his CDs? I I bought some of his old school. I bought some of Fresh Prince CDs. Okay. And so I went and I found Code Red. And there's a track on there. It's like one of the first songs. I think it's actually called Code Red. But I was blown away with how fast he was rapping, the wordplay that he was using, and just how fun it was to listen to. It was phenomenal to the point where I'm like, okay, I could, like, we have artists doing that now. And I'm like, okay, now I can see kind of where the origin came from. Because, um, you know, and, and he's had some setbacks um, as far as musically. But to be honest with you, um, you cannot you cannot separate Will Smith from hip-hop. Like, he was there before it became worldwide phenomenon. He was there. And he was... Kind of one one of those forerunners of like he wasn't the only one that was Run DMC and like other groups that were kind of, were there also you know LL Cool J, but did you mention where Tupac was from? Because I know that hip hop is very influenced by what city people are in. Yeah, hip uh yeah so yeah hip hop is really big into where you're from. Tupac originally from New York, but. From a musical standpoint, um, he represents California. And so, like, where is Will Smith representative? Philadelphia, 100%. I don't think he's ever, you know, he's 100% from Philly. Um, And so, now, going into the story you were talking about, so, I'm going to start, I'm going to go back to Pac for a minute. I'm going to go back to Tupac. So, Tupac actually went to, I believe it was Juilliard. Yes, Juilliard. He went to Juilliard, which you can touch on. It's a it's a performing arts school that like kind of only the elite get to it's go to. It's very prestigious. I don't know. I think he went on scholarship, but he went and he met. I don't know if it was at Juilliard or another um, uh, performing arts school. He met someone that we all know as Jada Pinkett, who later becomes Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. Um, and they, Tupac and, and Jada, became like best friends. I don't know if they ever had romantic interest, but I'm not going that far. But they were literally like best friends to the point where when Tupac did pass away when he was killed, I think Jada was one of the first people to find out. Like, that's how close they were. Mm -hmm. And Will Smith actually said in a recent interview, uh, I say recent, it could have been in the last couple years, I didn't check, that when he first met Jada and met Tupac, he was kind of jealous of Tupac. He didn't know, like, the relationship that they had. He, He was really intimidated and jealous of Tupac. But then he realized, okay, they're just really close, we're good, and they moved on. Um, and there's actually in the book that you were talking about, The Vows They Grew From The Concrete, there is poetry in there dedicated to Jada. So there was a deep connection there. So that's interesting that my two picks have this person in common. 
Um, actually, my three. Wow. Anyway, we're gonna Apparently. get to that. <laughs> wow. Anyway, okay. going into your second pick. Alrighty. Um. So let's see. My second pick. The second person that I was like, I knew immediately. Okay, this this is a person that is near and dear to my heart. Is Rudolf Nureyev, and um. He is actually the subject of the, I want to say it's 2019 biopic film called The White Crow. And he was born March 17th of 1938 and he died January 6th of 1993. And the reason that I picked him as like, just immediately, hey, he's in my top five. He has such an interesting backstory because... When he was a small boy, like his family won a raffle and he was able to see an opera. I mean, he he came from an incredibly like deprived childhood, but when he went into the opera house and he saw like the chandeliers and the curtains and all this stuff, he's like, Okay, this is where I want to be. Like this is where I I don't know what I have to do, but I wanna be a part of whatever world this is. So he worked and he trained, and like if you're looking at Nerea from a technical standpoint, he his technique may have not always been where it should have been. Like there were people who had better dances technique-wise than he did. But the thing that set Nerea apart was like he was just like a superstar in the ballet world. I mean, when he went and he danced. People were, like, captivated by him because he was just this explosive dancer. I mean, it was like watching a force of nature, I would imagine, for those audience members who were used to having the man just kind of be in the background, you know? Like, his job in the ballet world was to make that prima ballerina look good. And Nureyev, when he was partnered with um, Margot Fontaine, because I feel like I can't talk about him without talking about her... Um, because they had an incredible partnership together. But what really caused Nureyev to get captivated by the public eye was, I think in 1961 or 63, he was 23 years old. He defected to the West, and that's the subject of the film, The White Crow, basically being like, okay, I'm not doing this for political reasons. Like, I just really want to be able to dance and because he was born on a train, he would joke, well, I'm kind of a citizen of the world, you know? Like, yeah. that that was his thing. And I just, I don't know, I'm just captivated by his perseverance and his story and his partnership with Margot. And what I find funny about it, um, based on what we're talking about, um, because he left his country to, you know, to travel as far as dancing... He did it for the art, right? He didn't do it for a political statement. Yeah. But here's what I find so interesting. It, it ended up becoming a political statement. Would that be correct? Um. To, to some degree. Like, I feel like it, it, it did highlight the fact that the Soviet Union was not giving their people the freedoms that they might have wanted to encounter. Because Nureyev was born in 1938. And so when he was establishing his dance career he had these offers and these opportunities from the top companies in russia but russia the state government had told him that he had to dance in a smaller 
company in a smaller area and he's like you don't understand if i do this my career is basically going to be over yeah and because from what you and i have talked about on multiple occasions um russia they're very like no you you dance you stay here you do what we say like they control every aspect of your life at that time i'm not speaking on 2020 i'm simply speaking on what we've talked about historically would that be accurate when it came to this art form i feel like they did they did keep a a tight leash on their artists on their top stars on their talent because they wanted them to be able to return to russia and have that be a source of national pride to be like look these are the top of their field yeah um and with that you know like like we see it, it sometimes people are like that's fine i'll dance for russia and everything's great this dude was like but i'm not getting the opportunities therefore i'm gonna find the opportunities where they are and um when he partnered with margot fontaine she's a considerable amount older I saw it 20, 19, 20 years. Because she was born, oh, okay, here, May 18th of 1919. And remember, he was born in 1938. She died February 21st of 1991. So initially, she had refused to work with him because she, she was like, no, I just don't think it would look right to have such an age difference. Um, but then she was able to work with him, and, you know, he... He was kind of moody and temperamental, but I feel like their partnership on stage just, they had a good off-stage friendship as well. It it raised rumors of them being together, like romantically. Well, because he was, I believe, living with her for a time, but he was definitely um, batting for the other team, for lack of a better way to put it. He was gay. He was gay. and, you know, that's just... Alright. Do you have any other comments on the, on your... This is your second choice? This is my second choice, Rudolph Nureyev. Right. I, I feel like if I had to leave, like, a last impression of him is that he not only became a star within the ballet world, but he also became a star outside of the ballet world as well. Like, everybody was aware of who he was. I mean, as I was telling you earlier, he literally got to dance with Miss Piggy on the Muppet Show, you guys. You know you made it when you dance with Piggy on the Muppets. So, jumping into my third, I know you already know who it is. It's not hard to figure this one out. (laughs) So, it had to be my... This is my top artist of all time, but this is my list. It had to be Eminem. Now, why would I pick Eminem? Oh, you're asking me? Yeah, why not? Jump. Okay. Um, Well, literally, in our house, like, Eminem's birthday is kind of a holiday for us. I hope that's not weird, but, like, we we do. We take take the day and we're like, all right. I wish I could take the day off, but I don't know if if, if my boss would accept, you know, Eminem's birthday as a national holiday. Um... Eminem, why is he your top pick? You really love Eminem because he is such a versatile artist. He's been producing music for over 20 years. He, his lyrics are like, 
listening to his music really helped you with like your reading and learning yeah. that kind of a thing now let's just talk about his touch on hip-hop okay like not even me like what he's done in my life but so first of all he came up um and he is from detroit he was not born in detroit but he was he spent a lot of his childhood adolescence in detroit so um he was born when was his, I, I know what his birthday but he was born in 72 according to this article i don't know yeah that sounds about right um so yeah and basically he i guess early on in his life you know he became a student of hip-hop and what i mean by that is he looked at the pioneers the run dmc's the the ll cool j's um and he you know that those are the dudes who you know he modeled his style after so um when you talk about hip-hop like and what hip-hop has evolved to and become you're speaking about somebody who studied individuals who were there from the beginning now i was talking about how the three picks are have this common thread that I didn't even realize. We'll get into that in a second. But so M, he's definitely one of those artists that like one, he's one of the top selling artists of all time. Bottom line. Not just hip hop, I'm talking about of all time, one of the top selling artists. And this is just across the board. Across the board. So there's that. You have the fact that he, um, was artist of the decade, I want to say from 2000 to 2010, which is funny because he stopped making music in 2005 and did not release anything until 2009. So there's that. For a good chunk of that decade, he was MIA. You know, he was dealing with personal stuff and he still became artist of the decade. You have the fact that uh, in... I want to say 2018, he dropped the album of the year in December of 2018. Is that Kamikaze? Yeah. So, I mean, the simple fact that like he can put out an album at the butt end of the year and take over the whole year, like that's, you know, that's his commercial success. Um, and I don't know, I just, I feel like his... When it comes to lyricism, putting together words, he's one of the best. I will not put him as the best um, because I'm not here to ruffle feathers. I'm not here to cause controversy because there's plenty of people who don't like Eminem. But there's more people, in my opinion, that do. That's why you see his album sales just shoot through the moon whenever he drops an album. But as far as the connection, here's what's funny. So the first connection that we had was Tupac and um, Will Smith. excuse me and Will Smith both having a relationship or some kind of uh, connection with Jada Pinkett. Now, here's what makes it really funny, right? So before Eminem came out, like before he became a success story, he met Will Smith. Okay, 
and Will Smith uh, allegedly I've, I've, I've read it on a couple different times or a couple different sources Will Smith kind of basically gave Eminem the advice of like with your style you're either going to be the best artist of all time or the biggest flop of all time so there's that connection of Will Smith basically telling Eminem or basically saying hey you're either going to be the best that we've ever seen or the worst thing to ever happen to hip hop obviously we can see which way that that tilted because he's you know in most conversations is one of the best if not the best now for the connection to Tupac after Tupac passed away when they were putting together the music and the um, you know and, and the production for some Tupac albums and for Tupac Resurrection Afini Shakur who's Tupac's mother requested Eminem and if I remember correctly Eminem did it for free because of or he did it for like dirt to nothing simply because of the respect he had for, Eminem, for, for Tupac he basically was like you don't have to charge me nothing I'll do it for you now we know with Eminem that he comes from a rather I want to say impoverished is there a better way to put that no, no. an impoverished Absolutely. background um, what about Tupac and Will Smith, do they also have challenging beginnings to life? Tupac, yes. Tupac was, um, his family comes from, I don't know where they come from as far as like location, but his mother, his father, and his stepfather were all Black Panther members. Um, his mother was actually placed in, in prison, um, when she was pregnant with him so and she tried to like get more um food you know than the other inmates it's not because of being just because she was with child she needed better food she needed more food and she needed more resources nobody would take the case for her so she became her own attorney and actually won she didn't want out of prison she just said hey I just need more food. I need more resources. I have a baby that I'm trying to care for. Um, so I feel like the common thread here between these three superstar artists, for lack of a better way to put it, is perseverance. They had a lot that they had to in, overcome. In some regards. Now, Will Smith, he did not live in the ghetto. Mm -hmm. He was not rich. I, I would probably put him in, in you know, that middle class or just, just around middle class. Um, but his biggest thing, uh, his biggest, you know, adversary was when he made it rich, you know, when he made it big, he kind of spent a lot of his money without having money mm -hmm. because again, he was 19, 20 years old. They say he came you to fame at a young you age. Can't, you can't give someone, you know, millions upon millions of dollars at that young of age and expect them to know how to finance. Um, so he went bankrupt. Actually, at the time that he did Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, he did it, one, because he had to. He was that broke. Even though he was selling millions and millions in records, he was seeing very little of that money because he owed people money. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, and so there's that perseverance of climbing out of that hole. And now Will Smith is, I don't know how much he's worth, but he's 
one of the highest paying, uh, you know, um, actors. Because I feel like our generation. So. Um, that's a commonality between the hip hop artists that you've you that you have mentioned to me about is that they like hip hop kind of came about because people were trying to find a way to entertain themselves when they didn't really have access to musical instruments yeah. or, you know. They were trying to find a way to express themselves when they had nothing. Um, and again, they can't pay for musical training. They don't have the money. They can't pay for the instruments. They don't have it. So they made do with what they had and they created art from essentially nothing. And perhaps um, we'll have to see kind of the trajectory of where we want to take the rest of this series, but maybe we could have a podcast that is dedicated to um, just sort of what it takes to make it as a hip-hop artist or what it takes to make it in the ballet world. That might be the next episode. So, those are my three picks. All right. Let's jump to your third. We've got, for Anthony's picks, for the world of hip-hop, we've got Tupac Shakur, Will Smith, and Eminem, a.k.a. Marshall Mathers. A.K.A. Slim Shady. There's, he's got yeah, a slew there's, of names. There's anyway. a, a lot of nicknames. Um, okay, so for my final pick, for my top three, I had to go with Missy Copeland. I knew right away. I just love her. I'm, I, I admire her so much. Um, and if I may chime in, she's still alive. Yes, yes she is. That was going to be my next point. She wasn't born in 1920-whatever. <laughs> she was born, according to your notes, in 82. Yeah. So... Way to keep the culture alive, and we're going to talk about her, her pole vaulting the culture even further. Let's get into that. Oh, Misty Copeland. Misty, Misty, Misty. even I'm a fan of Misty Copeland. So, yeah, we just love you so much. Okay, um, Misty Copeland, she was... Most people who are going to be professional ballet dancers start their training very very young we're talking like three four five years old misty really didn't get into ballet until i want to say maybe 13 years old so already she's she's a little bit behind but she and by caught that up. time you're too late yeah she she just had this natural talent this natural ability she was able to move with music. She has a wonderful musicality, and I feel like that is just something that you cannot teach. You either have it or you don't. And in this world, she has it in spades. She, she just, she is so, she is so athletic. She is so graceful. I love her so much. When she was in the role of the Firebird, it was so instrumental to have a. A woman of color to be up there to be highlighting because um, the ballet world is it's definitely it's a, a little bit behind so they need to step yeah, up their game yeah you kind of buried that lead she is a woman of color she you know she's not white pasty and and you know she's and there's other thing this is gonna sound weird coming from me but there's other things about her body that make it special right like let's go let's talk into that Okay, so um throwing her under the bus. <laughs> no, it's fine, it's fine. Um in the classical ballet world you kind of have this picture of a woman, again, who might be like five nine, five ten, but is very slim, um like 
a delicate, delicate frame, not a lot of, like, not very big breasts, not very big hips, just doesn't have... And then you got Misty Copeland. And she, her body is, she does have more prevalent breasts and hips, but she just, I feel like her tenacity, her spirit, her, her I don't know how to describe what it looks like to watch her dance, but mm. she was in a production of Romeo and Juliet. I want to say with Roberto Bolle, and it was beautiful. It was so mm. moving. So, like, she really just captured the passion of this young person in love, and, like, oh, I just I cannot get enough. Now, there's another thing she's trying to get happen, right? So, she's a woman of color who I'm not going to say she made it lucky. She worked her tail off to get to where she is. But she's got a little bit of a controversy recently. Oh, okay, yes, okay. <laughs> so She's trying to figure out where I'm going with this. I, I got you. I know where you're headed. Okay. So in some classical ballets, they will have characters who are supposed to be Asian or black and they will have white dancers who will dress up in in blackface to make themselves look like these characters and Misty has been slamming I think it's the Bolshoi ballet in particular to be like this is not a good practice why do you continue to do this why don't you just hire dancers of color <laughs> who are people of color acceptable to fill these roles or else you know just like cut them from those ballets if you want to have white people dancing then showcase that but please do not have a white person try to look like a black person it's just not right and this when i heard this jessica came to me and was like hey did you hear this you know we talked about it i've gotta stand by misty she is like, hey, we have talented dancers who are able to do this and who are culturally uh, fitting for the role. Hire them. And she's basically like boycotting this whole thing. I stand by her. I think it's great because I agree. Like if you want this art form to to continue it really has to grow it cannot be stuck in the 1800s or the early 1900s we're in 2020 you've got to move with the times well and anthony and i have talked a lot about the fact that the people who are financing these ballets who are paying for them to be put on are the people who are going to want to just see the same ballets over and over again it's almost like going to the movies and just watching the same movie over and over again you're going to keep making making the same movie over and over again. And speaking of movies, Misty oh, Copeland Lord. is available. Um, she is in The Nutcracker in the Four Realms, and I absolutely love that movie, but I'm not going to get off on a tangent on that because we could be here for another hour. So Let's check not. it out. Nutcracker yeah, in great, the Four it's Realms. It's a good movie. Um, so that is your top three. That's we have, my top three. Uh, you, you're going to have to say these names because I can't say <laughs> these names. Okay. Um, it's Anna Pavlova. Yeah. Rudolph Nureyev. Yeah. And Misty Copeland. That's my top three. And I've got Tupac. I've got Will Smith and Eminem. We've given you a brief history of, of their work. Um, if you don't know these, art, these artists or these dancers, YouTube. Hit them up. 
find them. Look at how amazing these people are for their culture and how they progress their culture. Um, I do want to start to wrap this up because we're running a little longer than normal, but that's okay. Um, is there any last comments, anything going on that we need to, we need to look into? Um, again, we're just trying this series out, flexing its muscles a little bit because Anthony loves hip hop and I love ballet just to see what you enjoy. Are there artists that you would like us to research and feature? Yeah. Because we're all about getting feedback from you. We want to create content that you want to listen to. So please let us know how you like this new series. You can hit us up at beautifulfeetentertainment.com, beautifulfeetentertainment on Instagram and Twitter. And honestly, if you find me at any point in time on social media, just direct message me. I'm not, I, I will get back to you if I see a message. So I'm totally fine with that. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and take the break there. We're going to have a word from our sponsors. When we come back, we're jumping into Acts 16. Is that correct? Yes. So we'll be right back with Acts chapter 16. Welcome back to the Beautiful Feet podcast. This is the section of the podcast where we go ahead and dig into scripture. We're going over Acts chapter 16. Uh, before we do, I hope you guys are reading along with us in this time. I hope that you are studying this as well because this is not a substitute for the Bible. This is strictly just us sharing our thoughts. Um, so as I said, we're going into Acts chapter 16. And uh, let's go ahead and jump into Acts 15 first. Just a quick recap of that. Okay, um, so for Acts chapter 15, we're just going to, like he said, do a very quick, just a brief overview, a recap of kind of what we talked about last week. So we see in Acts chapter 15 that there's the very first church council because there's a dispute going on about um, basically whether or not Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to... Um, as they put it in verse 5, keep the law of Moses. So they're going through and they're meeting and they're talking about this and they come up with a conclusion that no, they, the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised because God has bestowed upon them the Holy Spirit and he is with them. And then um, they just go over a few things that they're like, okay, here's some things that we do want you to abstain from like don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols that kind of a thing so it's they they send out letters to these early churches just to give them some guidelines trying to make sure that everyone's on the same page mm -hmm. um and then as a part of that we see um paul and barnabas they get into a disagreement about um john who is also called mark because Barnabas wanted to take him with them, but Paul was like, no, I don't feel like that's, you know, what I want to do. So we see that um, Paul and Barnabas, they go in two separate directions. So Barnabas takes Mark and they go and they sail to Cyprus. But now we see Paul and Silas together. And this is where we're going to pick them up um, in chapter 16. 
we have Paul and we have Silas, and now we have a third person who's going to be joining them, and his name is Timothy. So Timothy was um he was kind of a special um, addition simply because um, I believe it was what his mother was Jewish. Yeah, his you're father right. was Greek, but the mother was actually a believer in Jesus. So he kind of was how did we put it earlier? It was like the the, the how did we put it earlier? It You're the like one who the, said it, don't look I, at me. I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was like being in the middle of the two cultures. So he You was, said he was a, a product of a product of two different cultures. Thank you. Um, so what that means is like, and I think that fits with a lot of us here because we, many people were not raised in the church or if you were like, there was a, probably a moment in time where you walked away from it, right? And it wasn't a, a part of your life, but eventually you kind of come back around. Um, and that, and this is just how I felt about it, right? I, I was definitely the product of two cultures. And so I kind of relate to, to Timothy within this. So they all gather together and where were they traveling to? Alrighty here. So let me take a look. They, um, sorry, it was a little Commercial bit of delay. Break. I know, right? Well, because they were, they were going to set out initially to go somewhere else, but then it says in verse 7 that the place that they tried to enter, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Yeah, so basically they're, they're following kind of what Jesus is, is putting in front of them, and they're trying to reach certain destinations, but for some reason they could not get there. And when they end up... Um, because they were, it says in verse six that they have been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So again, there's a place that they they have wanted to go, but God is redirecting them. And again, that's very important because I know in my life, I may put a plan in place of I'm gonna go here, I'm gonna do this, and that could be a job, that could be an activity or a hobby, and out of nowhere, it just kind of I. I get redirected because and it's not because God didn't want the word spoken in that area maybe it just wasn't time right maybe they were not going to be open to the gospel so God is putting them in a position where they're going to be um, the most I guess beneficial for the gospel and Paul actually in verse like 9 and 10 he has a vision and in this vision, this man is begging him to be like, come to Macedonia and help us. So then they, they take off. They're headed toward Macedonia. And it says that they realize, okay, this is where God is calling us to go preach the gospel. So that is how they end up going and traveling to Philippi in verse 12. Because that's a Roman colony in the leading city. So like... Macedonia has districts, right? And so Philippi is a part of that. So that's mm -hmm. where um, that's where they end up sailing to and traveling to. And um, once they get there, 
what happens after that. Let's take a look. So they get to where they're trying to um, travel toward, and they they meet uh, Lydia. What could you tell us about Lydia? Um. So Lydia is with a group of women who are all gathered together. They're outside of the city gate. They're by the river. Um, and she's there, and her occupation at this time is that she is someone who deals in purple cloth. And purple cloth was very valuable because at that time, you had to actually take little teeny tiny shellfish and grind them up to be able to make the purple dye. Um, and my, again, I always let people know I do use a Bible that's written to help children and it helps me um so that kind of lets you know that the clothing the cloth that Lydia was making was very expensive and because this was her business was to buy and sell purple cloth but she actually becomes a believer not only her but the members of her household were baptized as well yeah and and it gets to that point where because she's a believer and because she's assisting she's assisting Paul and Silas and Timothy, she's assisting these men, um, they actually stay with her, right? Like they actually come into her house and they stay with her for that period of time. Um, now, again, they, they are looking to preach the gospel um, and God is putting them into a position where they, they will be able to preach the gospel. Um, but something happens, right? There's, they're walking into, what was it, a city? Oh, like It says they're going into a place of prayer. I th okay. I'm thinking they're still in Philippi at this point. So they're still in the city. They're heading to uh, the place of prayer, um, which is most likely, it was an um, area that was specifically for praying and praising God and they encounter a woman and and this woman uh she was a, f a fortune teller basically she could tell the future um but I believe she was I don't want to say slave but yeah she, you're right she she is a female slave and she is owned by I think at least two masters yeah so here's this woman who is able to tell the the the, the future She's enslaved because of it. Um, basically, these men are using it for their benefit. They're using it to, you know, she would tell the future uh, to to a group, or and the group would pay. So now to hear we're their future. in Acts chapter sixteen, starting at verse sixteen. If you're going to be following along in the story with us, just yeah. so you know where we're at. Um, and so she sees Paul and Silas, and. She starts immediately, she identifies them immediately. Um, and she, can you read that, that um, almost a paragraph, but that passage where she identifies them? Starting at verse 17, she, meaning the fortune teller, followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And that moment, the spirit left her. So, this is what was so fascinating for me. Because 
she sees them again she's never met them before but she automatically is able to un understand the what these men are saying what these men are telling you is true it seems preposterous or it seems crazy but it's true so that means Jesus really was on earth he really did die for the sins of mankind he really did rise again um, and he is the you know the Lord and Savior and and she identifies this because of this spirit that she had in her um, and that means that you know this spirit mo is it was it was a dark spirit it, it was not um, following Jesus you know does that make sense like it was demonic for so lack of a better term and she was held captive by this spirit. It was using her more like a vessel for what it wanted to do. It was like she didn't really have her own life. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. And so she was not only held captive by the spirit, uh, by this dark spirit, but she was also held captive by these men. So she really had no freedom whatsoever. Now, um, going through this, the men basically... Uh, Paul and Silas basically turn it, turn it around on her and say, Hey, we know you are not, um, that you're a dark spirit, and we command you in the name of Jesus to leave this woman. And she was freed from that chain. She was freed from that spirit. Uh, and what does that mean for us? What, what, what does that look like today? We're going to get a little deep into this. What, what, let's talk about that in today's world. Well, and you and I were just having this conversation, I think it was last night, about like, hey, is evil really out there? And you were like, yes, yes it is, but like we know that we're safe. Yeah. So, I my mind breaks it up this way, okay? My mind breaks it up this way in the sense of um, you have people, I don't, I don't believe people inherently are bad. I believe the choices that we make leads to sin and that sin or that brokenness away from God then kind of creates a habit of sin. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. A habit of bad choices. Um, and that could be abuse physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, that's what leads to murder and jealousy and broken families and divorce and all these different things. But I also believe um, what the Bible talks about as far as spirits, right? There being an, uh, a spiritual enemy in our lives. What are your thoughts on that? Well, in the Old Testament, so like before they really had the Holy Spirit with them, the people of Israel would have times where they felt like, okay, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon this certain person. And it usually was... Uh, like a judge or a prophet or someone who God wanted to use to speak to his people. Yeah. But then in the New Testament, John the Baptist said, like, yes, I'm coming to baptize you with water, but someone else is coming after me, and he is going to baptize you with power from on high. And so after Jesus had come and he had his ministry, we see at the day of Pentecost, that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church. Yeah. So, yeah, I've just always, you know, so it's interesting to look at it from that perspective of 
this woman is actually being held captive by a by a dark spirit mm-hmm. because i think we especially here in america like we love right we love to sit there and go okay spirits don't exist ghosts don't exist it's all make believe and, and, and fantasy right like but i don't believe that like the Bible shows that it's not true, uh, that that belief is not true, that there are dark spirits that um, put us in, in difficult situations. Well, and to go back to that that concept of, okay, we have a choice here. Mm-hmm. Even like, okay, so God was there with the angels, and then Lucifer was like, hey... I want to be more like God. Like, I want to be on that level. So, he and the angels, they were cast out of heaven. Mm-hmm. And that's how we have the devil and his, like, the adversary, basically. Yeah. So, even those angels, they made that choice to be like, okay, we're discontented with what our role had been originally given to us to be. So, whether it's spirits falling away or humans falling away... It's done by free will, and it's done by choice. Um, and I, I 100% believe that. You know, we, we wonder if people are born evil. And I, I, don't, I, I don't see any biblical evidence of that. I see people making choices to walk away from God. And because they walked away from God, they, um, that's where that comes from. That would be the origin story of that mm. evil, so to speak. But because God loves us, he wants to be reconciled with us. Like, sin is a thing. Sin is anything that separates us from God. And And Jesus is the way that we're reconciled back to him. And I love that because all that means is that we're finally, through Jesus, we're able to have a a deep and personal connection with the God that created us. That's all that means. Uh, it's it, it. A lot of people try to make it more complicated or more convoluted, but at the source, that's what it is. We are finally in community with the God that created us through Jesus. So that's what we're starting to see here. We're starting to see this woman get freed from the spiritual bondage that she was in by the casting out of this evil spirit but what does that lead to let's talk about that right because her 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 earthly masters are going to see this and they are going to react so now we're starting with verse 19 continuing from there her owners they realize that they aren't going to be able to make money from her anymore so they take paul and silas they bring them into the marketplace and they're like look you are going to go before the magistrates. And so they're they're using the judicial system, the court system of, mm-hmm. of the time. And they, they, before the court, were saying, okay, these men, they're just causing problems in our city. They're doing things that are unlawful for yeah. Roman citizens to do. And so the crowd... They attack Paul and Silas, so the magistrates are like, you know what, we're going to let you beat them with rods. Mm-hmm. 
So after they've been flogged, then they get put into prison. And we're going to pause there for a brief moment. Uh, let's talk about uh, the owners of this woman, the slave owners of this woman. Their reaction was obviously negative, right? Because they're losing money. They're losing a way of making money. Um, but I love the fact that they take Paul and Silas, they put them in the court system, and they basically say, hey, these men are being unlawful, and they're causing chaos, or they're causing a disruption within the people. It literally says they're throwing our city into an uproar. And if you remember, if you look back, does it actually say that in Scripture, that they were causing an uproar? No, I'm saying oh. the actual act when they freed the woman was the city in an uproar. No. No. It looks like, honestly, the the people didn't really find out about it. Like, the crowd wasn't really gathered until yeah. they were brought before the courts. So, let's look into this and say, okay, these men take Paul and Silas into the court system and say, hey, they're causing a city-wide uproar. And they're, they're being unlawful. When all they were actually doing is work, they, they freed one woman from spiritual slavery. They didn't cause a scene. They didn't have a crowd. I mean, there was probably people on the streets who saw this, but it wasn't a big massive crowd of, of, of or a riot. It was simply a group of people, but this one woman was saved. So this is the 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 motivation right these men are losing money they're lying to get the courts to kind of push this along and punish paul and silas but they're lying the owners are right mm -hmm. that baffles me but we see that all the time in the world we live in right we i i see it all the time people want their way so they're willing to lie or stretch the truth or fib or whatever you want to call it to get that moving to get that ball rolling faster do we do you see that on in the culture we live in well thinking about it within the context of this you have two men who are traveling so like they're coming into philippi and macedonia from a different area like they don't really have connections here whereas these men this is where they live and work and have their business yeah their lives so who are you gonna believe two travelers just coming in or businessmen who are Absolutely. part of this community and but i guess i was i'm just kind of floored but i do see these men lying right to get their own way to mm -hmm. keep making money um well, and in in the Psalms and especially like in Proverbs as well, it talks about like, okay, what good is a false witness? What good is it if you have someone that's not going to have a balanced set of scales when they're measuring out grain or, yeah. you know, like, you you know, if you're, if you're going to be in a business dealing with someone, you want everything to be above board you want everything to be as it should be but like you said there are going to be a lot of people in businesses 
who are going to try and cut corners or stretch the truth or just do what they can to make money without yeah. really thinking about the long-term consequences of these actions. And because of this, Paul and Silas are beaten. Uh, they're, I think they're, they're flogged. And then they're imprisoned. Now, in the prison, they're put into... I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna consider it almost like a maximum security, right? You have a dude who's probably sitting there, basically watching the whole group of people, um, but they were told to specifically watch these two men. And let's let's go into that story, right? Let's look into that. So picking it up again in verse twenty four, the jailer puts them in the inner cell and he's fastened their feet in the stocks. Mm-hmm. So, they're not really going anywhere anytime no. soon. And does, does the guard fall asleep, or is it just... Maybe I'm misremembering, but... It, it does say later on in verse 27 that he had woken up. Okay. Because it's around midnight when the real action of the story takes place. Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. And so the other... And- prisoners are listening to them even that right there that's an amazing testimony right like they're in prison for preaching the gospel and then they're gonna go into prison and go okay we're gonna praise god we're gonna preach we're gonna pray to god we're just gonna keep this party going and the prisoners are hearing this right those and i imagine the inner uh cell is what it was right mm-hmm. the inner, yeah those are probably the worst of the worst these are not dudes who you know, jaywalked, or, you know, something small. These are probably, like, the worst of the worst. Um, so, yeah, we have that. And then there's the giant earthquake. Let's go into that. There is a violent earthquake, so much so that the foundations of the prison are shaken, and all of the prison doors are opening up, so everyone's chains are coming loose. And this is when the jailer wakes up. He sees the doors are open, and he's honestly ready to commit suicide because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And the reason why he was about to commit suicide is because in these times, um, one, this is his job, right? But it but it extended more than that. It was his reputation. It was who he was. Um, because this isn't like today, right? Where you have a job for a few years and then you move on, you get another job or you get a promotion. He was, this was his job this was his livelihood and it was kind of it was a custom right if you lost somebody um while you were on guard who especially who was high priority you're gonna probably get killed anyway for your insubordination at the at the workplace so he was kind of going a step ahead but peter sorry not peter paul speaks out paul speaks out and says hey we're still here yes our chains came off but we are still here. The gate door is open, but we're still here. And funny thing was, is I believe it said every prisoner was still there. Yep, everyone was still there. I was shocked because I would have imagined that one dude who's like, I'm so, I'm, I'm on death row. I'm getting out of here while I still can. I wonder if it had something to do with, you know, the preach, not the preaching, but the praying and the praising of God earlier in the chapter, they all kind of were following Paul and Silas's leadership because they're of that 
that experience. But they're all still there. And basically, Paul's like, don't kill yourself. We're still here. What happens after that? So, the jailer, you know, he he has like a lamp or it says he called for light. So, he's, you know, going through and like... Remember, this is what, midnight-ish? Mm-hmm. It's not... They don't have a light switch. They have to actually bring the light in. But go ahead. And then he goes... He is seeing Paul and Silas. He brings them out of their cell and asks them, like, hey, what do I have to do to be saved? Because he realizes that the God that they serve is the one who caused this earthquake and had the power to free them. And, like, and, you know. And it wasn't like the chains broke, right? It just said they opened. Mm-hmm. Like, so I'm imagining these, these shackles and these chains are still functional. It's not like a rock, you know, broke it. I mean, they just opened. So here you have a guard who's probably been hearing the praying, the singing, the worship for probably hours, right? And I don't know where he was on a spiritual level or his belief system, but I imagine in his head he's mocking them. Like, all these guys are in prison. They're being stupid. But... God opens the doors, God opens the chains, and they're still there. So here's the jailer's response. Like, the disciples say, okay, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. So they're, they're teaching him about the Lord. And this is what the jailer does. In the middle of the night, he takes them. He not only washes their wounds, he... And all of his household gets baptized. And then after that, he take, the jailer takes them not only into his home, but he like he sets a meal before them. Like he's, he's treating them like they were... Honored guests. Exactly. Distinguished people. And again, that's not typical. But when you have an encounter that changes your life, you tend to act differently than you would if it was your regular, ordinary day. I know in my life, I've experienced this, you know, where I met someone who just made an impact on me, and I'm like, here, let me show you my gratitude. Um, and I, I, can, I guarantee in, in your life, you can think of examples of because of what this person did for me, I'm going to honor them in this way. Oh, definitely. And I feel like, again, sharing a meal with your close family, with your friends, with people that you care about is still a way to express like, hey, here's my gratitude. Yeah. I mean, you you might know someone from church. It's like, hey, let me take you out to lunch. I want to be able to hang out with you. You know, that's definitely happened to us. So they not only meet Lydia who was a believer and they, they got to live in community with for that period of time. But they also got to lead the jailer, which they never give a name for him. They just call him the jailer uh, and his entire family. And they baptized them too, or at least they baptized the jailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and baptism, basically all that is, it's an outward um, expression of that change that God is doing on the inside of your heart. That's really all that is. 
but it allows people to experience your joy, experience what God is doing, and really um, celebrate with you. Well, and you can see it on the faces of people who have been baptized. Like, if you've never had the opportunity to watch a baptism, it really is like just this truly joyful, wonderful moment when they come up out of the water. You can see an immediate change. Like, they just feel... I know um, we were listening to a church message where this man had said he literally felt like the weight of the deeds of his past had been taken off of his shoulders and he could just walk around with his head held high, something he hadn't been able to do in years. Yeah. So that's essentially the essence of, of chapter 16. There's more at the end, mm-hmm. um, but that's the majority of it. You know, um, so what, what would you think is that big takeaway for this for this chapter i think that the big takeaway for this chapter is honestly just seeing like sometimes when people become believers they don't always have the support of their family or friends they might be the only believer that is in their household so i just think it's wonderful to see how everyone was coming to Jesus, so that way, like you said, they were able to be in community with one another. Yeah, and and it, for me, it's definitely one of those things where um, when you encounter a huge change in your life, whether it's the woman who was free from not only a spiritual um, slavery, but most likely a physical one as well, um, she, you know, I I could only imagine the joy that she felt from that. Uh, this jailer bringing his family to, to, to Jesus. There's joy there. There's a unity. There's, there's, there's a whole lot going on there uh, to celebrate. And, you know, and, and I think there's pieces of the story that we can look at and go, you know what? I've also dealt with something similar. Or mm-hmm. maybe I'm going through something similar I need to turn my life over to Jesus. Um, And if that is you, if you're hearing this going, you know what? Let me look into this. Let me really give my life over. Hit us up. You know, message us. Talk to us. We want to speak with you uh, and kind of start to point you, I don't want to say in the right direction, but just give you some resources that you may not have. Um... And we always advocate, again, finding a local church where you feel comfortable, where you feel accepted, where you feel like you are nurtured and able to grow spiritually and in community with other believers. Yes, because as much as people don't like to admit it, it's very important. um, It's very important to be in that community because those people in that church are going to help you grow. The pastor is going to teach you, um, and your friends and family are going to support you. So, being a, like, don't praise Jesus by yourself because eventually, I honestly believe you burn out. I've been there, I've tried it, I burned out. I didn't. Well, there's that analogy of like you have a whole bunch of coals and they're all on fire in a fire pit or a fireplace. But what happens when you take one coal away? It'll burn for a little while, but then because it doesn't have that source, it tapers off. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
So yeah, feel free to hit us up on beautifulfeetentertainment.com, uh, beautifulfeet on Instagram and Twitter, uh, and just really give us your comments, concerns, questions, um, and we will guide you the best that we can. Um, let's go ahead and pray, and huh? then we'll okay. uh, go from there. So for next week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. That's where we're going to be picking it up. Sounds good. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Um, Father God, we thank you for this week. We pray, God, that you would just continue to build our families, build our connection with our families because we are in so, such close proximity to one another. I pray that we would use these opportunities to start to really build uh, and get to know one another on another level. I just want to pray for those who are sick, whether it's with the virus or just in general. I just want to pray for healing for them. I want to just continue to lift up not only our country, but our globe at this time that is dealing with this pandemic. We know uh, that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And we just pray over that, God. We pray healing over that. We just pray, to God, that you would be with us, be with those who are still working, um, and really just allow us to be the best that we can at our jobs to help the community, to build up our community. And we just lift up those who are no longer working, whether they were laid off or they're just waiting for you know business to start back up. We pray for patience. We pray for um, peace over this time. And we just ask that you would be a continuous provider uh, for them, for us as well. And uh, help us just to really focus on you in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week, you guys. We'll be back on Wednesday with just, you know, some bonus materials, some updates to let you know how everything's going. And um, any last comments, concerns, questions? No, I feel like that that's a wrap, guys. All Thanks right, so sounds much. Good. Hit us up at beautifulfeetentertainment.com. Have a great week. Great, great, great rest, rest of... of your week. I know how to speak English. All right, talk to you guys later. Thank you for listening to the Beautiful Feet Podcast, a partnership of BeautifulFeetEntertainment.com. Please feel free to follow us on social media at Beautiful Feet Entertainment. Please visit BeautifulFeetEntertainment.com and do not forget to like, share, and subscribe.